open up your Bibles to Matthew 26, starting in verse 58. But Peter followed him at a distance to the high priest's courtyard, and he went in and sat with the servants to see the end. And then jumping to verse 69. <clears throat> now Peter sat outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him, saying, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are saying. And when he had gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and said to those who were there, This fellow also with, was with Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know that man. And a little later, those who stood by came up and said to Peter, Surely you also are one of them, for your speech betrays you. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know that man. Immediately a rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the word of Jesus, who had said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So he went out and wept bitterly. We come this morning to a really sad, sad passage of Scripture as we look at Peter denying Christ three times. It's got to be the lowest point of his life, the most despicable thing he'd ever done. It's a tragic moment. There's no doubt about that. But I think there's another side of this tragic story that, that's easy to miss. And that is that this may be one of the most encouraging, most hopeful of all biblical accounts. As we go through this this morning, I want us to see something very positive and exciting by the time we get to the end that will be very encouraging to us. Let me ask a question. What is the single greatest gift God could ever give? The answer to that question is obvious from Scripture. It is the forgiveness of sins. There would be no salvation without the forgiveness of sins. There would be no entrance into heaven without the forgiveness of sin. There would be no relationship with God without the forgiveness of sin. We would be useless in the hands of the Lord without the forgiveness of sins. We would not feel ever free from guilt without the forgiveness of sins. I think the greatest single thing that God has ever offered to man is the forgiveness of sin. Even back in the Old Testament, oftentimes people say, oh, the God of the Old Testament, vindictive, angry God, right? But if we look at Exodus chapter 30, 34, this is when Moses asked to see God. You remember that uh, situation? And God <clears throat> hid him in the cleft of the rock because his presence would wipe him out. He hid him in the, um, pres- in, in the cleft of the rock. And God said this, or Scripture says this, and he passed, God passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. That's our God of the Old Testament. Psalm uh, excuse me, 85 verse 2 says, You forgave the iniquity of your people. The Apostle John, you remember these verses well. 1 John chapter 1, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son purifies us from all sin. And John goes on to say, And if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us 
from all unrighteousness. Forgiveness of sin, cleansing from sin, is the single greatest gift that God has ever given to man. And that's exactly what we see in this passage and the fuller account of Peter's denial. I can't think of another saint in all of Scripture who sank as low as Peter did on that occasion. But what's so encouraging and so amazing about it is that even in the extreme depth of his sin, Jesus was there to forgive him. There are times when all of us as Christians feel overwhelmed with our own sinfulness, as we should. And in a sense of brokenness, we come to the Lord and we find the forgiveness that heals the soul and brings joy back to our lives, back to our souls. And that's the experience of Peter. From the depth of his sin, we see the profound extent of God's forgiveness. So this is actually a very hopeful account, a very encouraging account for all of us who are sinners saved by grace. Now, in order to understand our text this morning, we need to realize that this is not an isolated thing, not not an instance that just something that happened because it happened. This is something that has been progressing through the whole process of the arrest and trial of Christ, and it comes to its culmination here in this courtyard. It's easy to ask, how is this possible? Why? How could Peter do such a thing? Impossible, right? Well, if we go back in our text a little ways, a little bit earlier in the chapter there in Matthew 26, I think we see a sequence of things that led to this fall. And it's a sequence that we all need to keep in mind because it happens to us as well. If we go back to verse 31, we see Peter's pride. We see his pride. They, they had just sung a hymn. You remember this. They were in the upper room. They, they had gone out to the uh, Mount of Olives after having finished the Passover uh, meal. And Jesus goes to the garden and prays. Um, and he goes there and he's eventually taken uh, captive as he's been arrested. And you remember that as they are going along toward the Mount of Olives, Jesus stops and he teaches them and he says to them, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, and he quotes Zechariah, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So Jesus predicts their defection in the midst of his trial, which he is now in the process of going through. Now, as Jesus predicts the defection of the disciples, Peter responds. You remember, we we talked about this. And he says in verse 33, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I believe he believed that. Sincerely. He was very sure of himself. He truly loved the Lord, and he couldn't imagine any circumstance or any difficulty that would come up that would cause him in any way to defect or deny his Lord. His emotional impulses just couldn't compute that in his mind. We have to be so careful with our emotions, not to allow them to control our mind or our heart And in his pride of who he was, and in his pride of how much he loved Jesus, he rather boastfully was saying, you're wrong, Lord. That takes an awful lot of ego. To confront the word of the living God and say, you're wrong. 
I know better. And that's what he did. Then immediately after that, we see that very, very often, what very often follows that boastful pride is Peter's defiance. In verse 34, Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, This very night before the rooster crows, you, talking to Peter, you will deny me three times. And Mark adds that he said, Before the rooster crows twice. Very specific. Because of Peter's prideful boast, Jesus pinpointed him out of all the disciples, saying all the rest are going to defect. But you, Peter, you're going to go a step further. And you're going to actually deny me three times before the rooster crows twice, within a two-hour period of time. Folks, pride is so, so dangerous. When we make a statement based on pride, we paint ourselves into a corner which, from which we cannot get out of except through humility and admission of prideful sin. And that's really, really hard to do. We tend rather to do what Peter did. We double down, right? We become defiant. We see Peter's defiance in verse 35. Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Now when Jesus said, you will deny me, he used a very, very strong verb that means to completely deny. The dictionary says to affirm that one has no acquaintance or connection with someone. That's strong. And Peter just cannot accept what Jesus is saying to him in the moment. And Mark tells us in chapter 14, verse 31, quote, But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. The Greek word for emphatically means superabundantly, exceedingly, out of measure. That's how strong Peter became in his defiance. I will die first, he says, which is the ultimate in, uh, and, um, and ex- in the extreme act of courage, isn't it? We then see Peter's indifference. We see his indifference as we move into the garden to the time of prayer. Jesus took, remember, Peter, James, and John deeper into the garden and asked them to pray. Please, pray with me. Pray for me. And Jesus comes back to them and finds them asleep. In verse 40, he says to Peter, Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, he was looking at Peter, the leader of the disciples, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But they didn't see the need. Jesus had told them that this was the hour of the power of darkness. But they were oblivious to it and saw no need. They were smug, boastful, self-confident. Why do they need to pray? Everything was fine. So we see the disciples' indifference. They were indifferent to the need to pray. And folks, that's a very, very dangerous place to get to. We find the next scene in verse 51. And here we see Peter's impulsiveness. His impulsiveness. Peter is so confident, so defiant, so indifferent to the need of of praying for extra strength that results in acting absolutely on his own. When the soldiers came and they arrested Jesus, Scripture says with that, one of Jesus' companions, and we know it was Peter, reached for his sword, drew it out, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. 
He jumped out and took matters into his own hands. He acted impulsively. He was definitely not acting under the instruction of Jesus. This is not what Jesus wanted. You remember um, earlier in, in the evening, the disciples said, Hey, Jesus, we've got two swords. We're going to fight for you. We're going to defend you. And what was his reaction? Put it away. This isn't how we're going to do things. And when Peter cut off the man's ear, he told Peter to stop it. Put away your sword. And then he went on to say, And don't you know that if I needed it, I could get 12 legions of angels from my father? But then how would prophecy be fulfilled? He's saying, get with a plan, Peter. That's often what happens when we are out of sync with the Lord's plan because so often we act impulsively because we're so sure of ourselves. And it was his pride, his defiance, his indifference, and his impulsiveness that actually leads finally to his failure through compromise. And that's our text for this morning, his failure through compromise. And this failure was inevitable, inevitable because of his prior attitudes leading up to this. Now let me set the scene just a little bit here um, about what's going on. The, the, the thousand or so soldiers and, and temple guards and priests and, and servants and others that were all there arrested Jesus in, in the garden, took him back to Jerusalem where they carried out that horrible, unjust, unfair trial of Jesus in the middle of the night in the house of Caiaphas, which we looked at last week. And so verse 57 says, They led him away to Caiaphas the high priest where the scribes and the elders were assembled. This is midnight. Talk about premeditation. They knew this was going to be taking place. They were already assembled waiting for him. Now as you come into this particular house... You would come to a great wall as you come uh, to, to, to the house, uh, perhaps two, maybe three stories high. Uh, there would be a gate in the middle, and you'd walk through the gate and go through kind of a corridor all the way through that section of the house into a courtyard in the very middle. It would be open to a huge court, and the house would kind of work its way around a big square or rectangle around that court. And, and all the rooms on the floors above would all look down into that courtyard. Now, this is apparently the actual home of Annas and Caiaphas that we've been talking about. One great section, no doubt, of that house belonged to Annas. Another great section of that house belonged to Caiaphas, um, since they were related. Remember, Caiaphas was a son-in-law of Annas. And it was in the section where Caiaphas was where he was meeting with the Sanhedrin. So there was one courtyard, and all the, excuse me, all the denials of Peter happened in that same place. John says in chapter 18 that the first denial occurred while Jesus was before Annas. The other gospel writers tell us that all the denials took place in this courtyard. So there's actually no conflict in, in those accounts because Annas and Caiaphas shared that same courtyard. It's very common. Now, how did this scene unfold? First of all, verse 58 tells us that Peter followed Jesus at a distance. Now, something that we don't usually catch in these events is that Peter wasn't alone. I don't know if you ever remember that. According to John 18, verse 15, he's with another disciple who also followed Jesus. It says Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. 
that other disciple turns out to be John. Because this disciple, John, it goes on to say, was known to the high priest, he, he goes on to say he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard, but Peter had to wait outside at the door. Isn't that interesting? We have no idea then what happened to John afterwards. We don't know if he stayed. We don't know if he left. That's not the point of this passage. But Peter couldn't get in because he wasn't known. But then... Before we don't hear any more about John, John actually takes care of that by going back to the gate, talking with the, the girl who is, who is uh, letting people in and out. And verse 17 there, there in John, says, The other disciple, John, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. John then disappears from the scene. We don't hear any more about John there. Details. Fascinating. I love details. Why was that important to know? John was there to give access for Peter into the courtyard. He was a part of the unfolding of the plan and the prediction of Christ. If Peter hadn't got in, he wouldn't have denied Christ. So you may say, so why in the world would Christ go through all of that and work out all that plan, uh, even predict that Peter would deny him? Why would the Lord even work it out so he could do it? I think there's a couple of reasons. Because it was to teach us a lesson about being spiritually unprepared. And going a step further to teach us a profound lesson about the restoration of a sinning saint. A powerful lesson that should encourage us. But it was also to prepare Peter to be who he was going to be as he led the early church through Acts. So John disappears from the scene and Peter becomes a focal point here. So Matthew tells us in verse 58, but Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered with John's help and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. Now he's in there and he's sitting with the temple police, the temple guards. He comes in and he wants to see the end. What's going to happen? He wanted to see the outcome. He couldn't just walk away. He had to know. He had to see what was going to happen there. So he's just sitting there by the fire with the temple guards and the others, keeping themselves warm in, in a cool evening, trying to be quiet and inconspicuous. You can imagine that. Just trying to hide in a corner, but be, just be with the crowd. So it's a little before one in the morning on Friday. And Peter's sitting there with the soldiers, warming himself, trying to be inconspicuous. And then it happens. We see Peter's downfall. We see his failure. We see his collapse. We see it all take place. As he's sitting there, Matthew tells us in verse 69, Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus from Galilee, she said. Now that's fascinating to me, and people have had conniptions over this. In fact, that all four Gospels talk about the accusation and the denials of Peter. And they all seem, seem to say it in a different way with different people. So are they contradicting each other? Is this proof that the Bible is an error? 
John says, I made a little graph here, number one, a girl at the gate. Secondly, second accusation, servants and officials. He refers to them as they. And then thirdly, a relative of the man who cut off, uh, cut, cut, who <laughs> Peter cut, Malchus, Peter cut his ear off. Yes, thank you. Then, then if you take a look at the, the gospel, let me get it here, of Luke. First of all, he says a servant girl. Secondly, he has said someone else. Thirdly, he says another attested. Mark says a servant girl of the high priest. Secondly, a servant girl again. Third, those standing near. Matthew says a servant girl. Another servant girl, those standing near Peter. So it's, it's all kind of mixed up there. What's going on? Well, I think what we have here... And we need to understand that people are all milling around that courtyard. You can just imagine that scene. And I think they just all start getting into it. What's clear is that a servant girl started the whole thing. Every gospel mentions that. She, she catches the attention of the others around the fire and gets the rest going. I saw this man, Jesus of, of Galilee. You were with him. Yeah, I saw him too. That's right, you've got that Galilean accent. You must know him. Yeah, I, I thought I recognized you. You're the one that cut, cut my, uh, the, the ear off my cousin's uh, the head. You know how those things go? The point is that there were a lot of accusations flying, and it was getting hotter and hotter for Peter. But it's clear in all three Gospels that Peter denied Christ three times. Matthew tells us that he denied it before them all. He didn't respond to every accusation that came at him. He denied it before them all. Once, twice, and a third time. They were kind of ganging up on him, and he was afraid. I got to thinking, this is so unlike Peter. This is so unlike Peter. What happened? I mean, Peter, he's big and bold and, and brash. And I wonder if he wasn't willing and prepared to do something big and bold for his Lord. If Jesus had called out to him for a defense against these false accusations in that room, I think Peter may have run in there and jumped in there to give a defense. Like he did in the garden. I mean, one guy, one sword, a thousand people in front of him, and he went at it with a sword. Here he may have been ready for the big testimony, but he wasn't, what he wasn't ready for was a little unexpected thing that happened. I think we can often be like that too. I mean, we can prepare ourselves to lead a good Bible study pretty well. We may prepare really well to communicate Christ to our neighbor if we plan ahead. We may be uh, able to anticipate certain things that, 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 are, that come along and we get ourselves psychologically and emotionally and, and physically ready for it. You, you, you've been there, right? Kind of building yourself up. Then all of a sudden, we get hit with something that we don't expect. It knocks us off our guard. And we wind up denying Christ. Perhaps just by not saying anything at all. Staying quiet, staying silent. Peter may have been ready for the big thing, but it was the little one <laughs> that got him. And Jesus wasn't by his side. He was all alone, and he was afraid.
And so he denied what the young girl said in front of everybody. He's a living illustration of the principle given by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. I think it's his own sense of confidence became his undoing. It only took a young servant girl standing at the gate to fell the chief of the disciples. Gone were his high and mighty protests given to Jesus. Gone was his courage that supposedly existed in his heart. He was afraid of being arrested. His self-preserving instincts took over, and he denied what he knew was really true. Quite remarkable, really. And a great insight into spiritual character. One author wrote, The thing that reveals character is involuntary response, not planned response. I thought that was good. Our character isn't manifest by what we prepare for. It's manifest by what we're not prepared for. How do we react? How, how do we react to that involuntary thing that, that takes place? That's what really shows our character. We can all plan for those spiritual experiences to some extent, but it's those things that catch us off guard that, and, and, and reveal the real weaknesses of our hearts that tell us who we really are. Peter was caught off guard. He, he couldn't get prepared for this one. And his involuntary reaction was one that showed his character to be weak and sinful. And it wasn't just something that happened out of the blue. It was a result of a strong ego and pride, an unwillingness to listen to the word of the Lord, a failure to pray, and, and acting utterly on his own, independent of the purpose and plan of God. He was on his own, and on his own he was weak, just like anybody else. So let's go through these denials a minute here. Verse 69 says, Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard. Luke tells us that, quote, When some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. He was just trying to be one of the crowd, right? Inconspicuous, staying warm. So he was sitting, uh, Matthew goes on, so he was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. Verse 70, he says, but he denied it before them all. In front of all those sitting around the fire, I don't know what you're talking about. Then he went out to the gateway. He wanted to get away from that group around, around the fire. That was just, just a little bit too uncomfortable. So he gets up and goes over to the gateway where, where people are moving in and out. You know, the kind of a corridor coming into, into the house or into the courtyard. And people are moving back and forth. Maybe he was hoping with all the movement uh, he can be a little bit more conspicuous. Nobody's really going, going to pay attention to him over there. Now it's interesting to note that Mark adds that he, he went out into the entryway and the rooster crowed. First denial, first rooster crow. That would have been about 1 a.m. The roosters crow like clockwork. Now remember, Jesus said he would deny him three times before the rooster crowed crowed twice. The second time is coming at about 3 a.m. So this is all happening within a two-hour time period. So the rooster crows, and I doubt if Peter even heard that first rooster crow. His heart had to have been beating so hard and so loudly. He was so scared that his mind probably didn't even register that a rooster had crowed. 
So he denies Jesus, gets away from the people around the fire, heads to the gateway, and the rooster crows in the background for the first time, where, Matthew says, another servant girl saw him. Now, who's that servant girl? Well, it's interesting enough, John tells us. It was a servant girl on duty there who brought Peter in. So when John went back to get Peter in, she was the one that John had the conversation with. And, Matthew says, she speaks up fairly loudly and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. Now, you remember, that's a very derogatory term. Nothing good comes from Nazareth, right? So she was putting, putting him down along with Jesus. Verse 72, he denied it again with an oath. And we don't know what that oath was. It could have been something like, I swear to you as God is my witness. I don't know him. He is vehemently denying and bringing in an oath of truthfulness that he doesn't know Christ. It's a second denial, and it's worse than the first. It demonstrates a lack of trust. Why couldn't he just say the truth and then trust Jesus? Because he didn't have the spiritual strength at that point. He was weak. He had great spiritual privilege. He had 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 great spiritual privilege with Jesus for the past three years. Great spiritual experiences. But he had not yet developed the spiritual strength in Christ. You know, in spite of our experience, in spite of our privilege, and we do have that to come and freely worship the Lord on, on Sundays and other days, We need to understand that we're not necessarily invulnerable. And it may be that there are people who think that, you know, because they know so much about the Bible and because they're experiencing so many things in terms of the moving of God and and they're in church all the time, that they are beyond the possibility of a disaster. And that's just when we're the most vulnerable. That's right, right where Peter was. Well, things seemed to have calmed a little bit, and Peter was milling around with everybody else there, probably thinking he was safe now. Nobody's been saying anything for about an hour, and people were going to just kind of let it go, kind of drop it. But Matthew in verse 73 says, After a little while, Luke tells us, about an hour later, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Now, remember why Peter was there in the first place. Luke tells us, excuse me, he was there to see the outcome. He was there to see the outcome. That horrible trial of Jesus was going on during all this time that Peter was there in the courtyard. It couldn't have been very quiet. There's no windows blocking the noise. It's coming from the trial going on inside. I mean, they were screaming about blasphemy in there, and Caiaphas was ripping his clothes. By this time, they they may have been spitting in Jesus' face and pounding at his face with their fists, and and they were slapping him when he was blindfolded, telling him, tell us who just hit you because you can't see. It's a horrible thing. And Peter was there, and he was nearby. And he may have even been able to see through the doorways or through the windows into the scene that was transpiring. And I bet he was physically upset. You could probably see the horror on his face. It was a horrible thing. 
And Matthew tells us after a little while, those standing there went to Peter. They probably saw his reaction to all that was going on. And they came up to him and said, surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Just like we can tell somebody's from the south or somebody's from New England or somebody's from way out west. People from Galilee had a specific accent, probably the same accent that Jesus had. Surely you're one of them. Do you know who was in that last group that came to Peter? John tells us that it was a relative of Malchus, the servant of the high priest whose ear Peter had cut off. Now this is getting really serious for Peter. This is dangerous for him. So Peter, verse 74, then he began to call down curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man. Cursing. Katathematizo, a very, very strong word. It means to call down direst evils upon someone. Basically, it means to pronounce death upon yourself at the hand of God if you're lying. May God kill me dead and damn me to hell if I'm not speaking the truth. That's how far gone Peter was at that moment. And he didn't just curse once. It says he began to call down curses. He continued for a while in his scared, emotional state. He lost all fear of God, all sense of reality. And this in the midst of all that Jesus was going through in this horrible trial, having been rejected by the world, sold by one of his own disciples, and now denied again and again with curses and swearing by the leader of his own disciples. Talk about a man of sorrows. And then verse 74 says, Immediately the rooster crowed. Immediately the rooster crowed. That's the second time at 3 a.m. the Lord's prediction came to pass. Then listen to what Luke tells us in chapter 22, verse 61. The rooster crowed, the Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Peter must have been able to see Jesus. Maybe he was standing outside the window looking in and all that was going on, watching Jesus being bitten, uh, beaten and, and spit on. Maybe he was in the courtyard a ways away and Jesus, uh, the, the trial having ended, was being led past him and, and in moving past looked right into the eyes of Peter. But that look must have burned into his soul. It must have created for him the most excruciating pain that he had ever experienced. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. What was that look all about? Accusation? Condemnation? Rejection? I told you so. No, it's not Jesus. That's not Jesus. That look, I think, did a couple of things. In that moment, Peter realized the utter depravity and sinfulness of his heart. I think Peter also learned never to doubt Jesus' word again. On Jesus' part, I think that look was a look of compassion and mercy and, yes, sorrow. He understood Peter's heart and the wretchedness that he was feeling in that moment. Jesus didn't have to say, I told you so. Jesus didn't have to say, take that, Peter. 
Jesus loved Peter and had great plans for Peter. But Jesus had to allow Peter to go down the trail to the point where he was broken before Jesus. Boastful pride, he felt he could handle things himself. Defiance of Jesus' word, he would not believe Jesus when he said he would deny him. Indifference to prayer, didn't see the need to take that time and effort to pray. Impulsiveness, he, he did things on his own, thinking that his way was best. Then there was a total failure through compromise. He went into the courtyard and mingled with that crowd that was there. Reminds me of Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, which says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners. Take um, th- that the sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. Peter did all of it. Peter walked in among them. He hung around and stood with a crowd and he finally sat down among the mockers to sit in the midst of the temptation yet far enough away from Jesus not able to count on that strength was to be in the place of compromise. Spiritual self-confidence Thinking we're invulnerable is a dangerous, dangerous place to be in. Self-confidence, insubordination, prayerlessness, independence will always lead to compromise every time. And if we think we can handle every situation, we're going to get into some situations that we can't handle and we're going to fall. And that's where Peter was. But I don't want to leave him there. I don't want to leave you there. That would be a horrible place to end. Because there's something that takes place that gives us all amazing hope. You see, the true Peter is seen not in his denial, but in his repentance. What a contrast between Peter and Judas, who we're going to be looking at next week. Judas felt remorse and went out and hanged himself. Peter felt remorse and went out and repented. Peter went out and wept bitterly and was later restored, and that's the difference between a Judas and a Peter. Both sinned horribly, but one will repent and be restored, the other will be damned. You know what the difference is? Jesus said in Luke chapter 22, verse 32, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Remember him saying that? You know why Peter's faith didn't totally fail? Because the Lord had what? The Lord had prayed for him. Listen, the reason that we stay saved is not because of something we've done. It's because the Lord holds us. The Lord is holding us. He didn't hold Judas because he never had Judas. But he held Peter. And Peter's faith didn't totally fail. And the story isn't over because we see Peter's remorse. Verse 75 says, Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. And he uses a very, very strong expression, which means to weep audibly, to sob loudly. He was wrenched in the agony of repentance. We actually learn a great lesson here. It wasn't until he saw the face of Jesus and remembered the words of Jesus that he repented. Listen, sin sin didn't make him repent. It was a Savior that brought him to repentance.
Here's a very important principle. It's not our sin that makes us weep and repent. It's when we see what kind of Savior we have seen, uh, sinned against. When we understand that, that's why it's so important to know Jesus more and more profoundly. That was Paul's constant desire. It's an ongoing process. The great apostle Paul who preached and started churches and missionaried everywhere. He said, I want to know Christ. He could never get enough. It's in seeing and knowing Jesus that our sin is exposed, that our eyes are opened to our own sinfulness. It's the light of Jesus, in the light of Jesus, that the darkness has to flee. And then comes the restoration. For the rest of the story, we have to step out of Matthew and jump over to John 21. I just wanted to mention this very briefly here. Peter's in Galilee. And the Lord appears after the resurrection, and he comes to restore Peter. And, and he comes to Peter and says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? How many times did he ask him that? Three times. And three times Peter says, I love you. I love you. I love you. The Lord was bringing him back. He was bringing him back. And the three times of denial, for the three times of denial, there were three times of affirming love. And the Lord accepted Peter's testimony and restored him and said, feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. And he put him back on his feet, back into ministry, and he became the great proclaimer of the gospel and the leader of the early church. Now that's a hopeful story, isn't it? God is in the business of giving grace to sinners. God is in the business of restoring the fallen. God is in the business of picking up the person who has even denied him, who has shown himself to be weak and putting him in a place of strength. I'm so glad that we have a God of forgiveness, aren't you? Go back and read First and Second Peter sometime. And you'll find that Peter talks there about self-confidence. He says we need to switch it out for humility. He talks about insubordination, and he calls people to obey the word. He talks about prayerlessness, and he says watch and pray. He talks about compromise, and he calls for faithfulness to death, and an answer to everyone who asks you of the faith that is in you with meekness and fear. Folks, he learned all those lessons right there in that courtyard. Right there in that courtyard. And I think we could probably sum up his own testimony of this occasion in his own words. In 2 Peter 3.17, he says, Therefore, dear friends, and he's speaking from experience, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of, lawless, uh, error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. He said, My friends, don't you do what I did. But, he goes on in verse 18, grow. <laughs> grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's a good word from Peter, isn't it? He ought to know. He was there. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, <laughs> thank you for your love. Thank you for your forgiveness. We don't deserve it. 
But that's what's so amazing about your love, so amazing about your grace. You want to pour that out into our lives. And Father, if there are areas in our lives where we have denied you and we're going, perhaps going through this pride thing and perhaps we don't see prayer really as that, that uh, important, that necessary, and we, we get into this feeling that I, I know better how to do things, I can, I can handle things myself, all those things we experience as part of our sinful nature. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts, open our minds to see if that's been what's been going on in our lives. And I pray that you bring that conviction just like you did with, with Peter. You looked at him and Peter knew. Peter was convicted and he wept bitterly. And Father, you saw that repentance on his part and you brought him back. You wrapped him in your arms of love, set him up. You gave him strength, empowered him with the Holy Spirit and he became the preacher. He became uh, the leader of the early church. And Father, I pray that you would do the same thing for us. Work in our hearts, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name.